welcome to Green and Gold, the cannabis podcast that covers all things weed. This week is part two of our Pregnancy and Pot series, so if you haven't yet, you may want to head back and listen to part one first, which will give you some insight as to why we're doing this now. You can also read my story recently published in Rolling Stone on the topic, which is linked to in our show notes. Okay, so this week we're talking about the medical research into cannabis's effect on a pregnancy, what it proves, what its shortfalls are, as well as what some recommendations are from doctors as to using or not using weed while pregnant. Before we get to our interview with Dr. Mishka Turplin, let's review some of the research. Okay, so there are definitely two camps when it comes to weed's perceived impact on a pregnancy and a fetus. But first off, you should know that most doctors, as a general rule, suggest cutting back on all unneeded substances during a pregnancy that could possibly pose any risk. Often, this is simply because there's just not enough known about a lot of substances. For example, I used to use a nasal spray every day for my allergies and to help me breathe, and even though there's no conclusive evidence that the spray is bad for the baby, doctors basically told me I should stop using it, or at the very least, use it as minimally as possible. And that's just a nasal spray. So for example, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, says that using weed during pregnancy can impact a baby's development. And there is also the added concern of chemicals found in edibles or lotions or other cannabis products that can have their own set of negative effects on a pregnancy. But they also say that they don't have enough research to really say definitively either way. So basically, mothers should err on the side of caution. There is some research that has been done, though, on the topic, and it has shown, in part, that THC, the psychoactive element found in cannabis, can cross the placenta and enter the baby's bloodstream. After that, however, is where things get even murkier. In a 2016 piece published in Obstetrics and Gynecology, it was stated that weed on its own is, quote, not an independent risk factor for adverse neonatal outcomes. This basically means that things like low birth weight and preterm birth aren't the result of just weed use alone, according to this study. Often these things are the result of a combination of drug use that typically involves alcohol or opioids. However, on the flip side, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has cited studies that show exposure to weed can impact motor skills and brain development in a baby and even increase the risk of stillbirth. So further complicating matters is the existence of this one big study that's widely cited, which was actually conducted in Jamaica in the early 90s. So, you know, this is a few decades ago, and we're still looking at this as one of the most reliable sources of information. Um, And basically, it followed babies whose mothers used weed during pregnancy, and followed another group of babies whose mothers didn't, and tracked them until they were five years old, used various different um, testing methods throughout that time, and found that there was no lasting impact 
on the segment of children whose mothers had used cannabis. So basically, these two segments of children grew up the same, had similar development. Um, There was no measurable impact. All this is to say that, in conclusion, there are very few conclusions on pregnancy use in cannabis. Like I said at the beginning, a doctor would tell you not to use it because there's simply not enough research into its possible effects. However, as we know from before, um, a lot of women do choose to use it either recreationally or to help with real medical ailments, often that are exacerbated during pregnancy, such as anxiety and nausea. So to kind of help us sort through all this and give us a little better ground floor perspective, we're going to talk to Dr. Mishka Turplin. He's an OBGYN and addiction specialist, and we're hoping he can give us a little bit of direction on this very confusing subject. Cannabis is the most commonly used um, illicit substance in in the United States and also the most commonly used among pregnant women. And um, use has been uh, increasing in the general population as well as among pregnant women in the last decade or so. Who decides what's classified as illicit? You know, since cannabis is increasingly legal in a lot of states. Correct. And and, and that's why I sort of paused around illicit because our uh, drug surveillance system classification marks distinctions uh, at illicit as a category. And uh, you raise a really, really good question that's even uh, more important, you might argue, during pregnancy or when the consideration of pregnant peoples and substance use. And the the distinction of licit versus illicit is a social and legal one and relates not at all to any biological or, you know, chemical um, attributes or risks or harms um, or benefits of, of substances. In point of fact, you know, like, so the legal, quote unquote, the substances would be uh, on the whole tobacco and alcohol, although there's, you know, age limitations. And um, cannabis sort of falls in the middle in that from certain state laws, it's legal and under a federal law, it's not. And that varies um, geographically at the state level. And then other substances, you know, um, heroin, cocaine, et cetera, are illicit. But even those categories get somewhat blended. I mean, we have people who in the opioid crisis developed opioid use disorder, not to illicit heroin, but to prescription opioids, which, you know, can be obtained in legal or you know, not as legal methods. And so this distinction of licit, illicit is something that might make, make, make some sense perhaps for legal worlds and is really like kind of a ludicrous one for um, medicine, clinical practice. I want to also problematize this licit, illicit distinction from the perspective of the fetus. Mm-hmm. So a fetus doesn't quote unquote know whether or not the exposure is illicit or illicit substance, whether the uh, pregnant person is using it as directed, not as directed, or anything like that. So this distinction, which we apply, you know, retrospectively, especially in domains of child welfare and other ways that pregnant, you know, women who use drugs are punished is through this lens of licit, illicit, and it really does not map at all onto um, biological or developmental, you know, harm or risk. 
besides the fact that use is increasing, is there evidence that cannabis use is harmful, you know, specifically to pregnant women or developing fetuses? Is there not? Like, where does the evidence, I guess, lie at this point? So for cannabis in particular, we have actually decades of evidence. There are four prospective cohorts of children who were exposed in utero, um, starting from the 80s through to the most recent cohort um, launched in the early 2000s. There are multiple different systematic reviews, which are ways of pooling the data from published trials into more summary um, documents. So one could say that the, the evidence base is actually broad and deep and consists of uh, evidence of high quality. Now, the conclusions of that, that science are not that straightforward. They don't always agree with each other. And if I had to summarize it, I would say that the, the, the effects, when they exist, are subtle and oftentimes confounded by other things. So one, one finding, you know, has been slightly lower birth weight infants um, amongst pregnant people who use cannabis and uh, perhaps slightly trend towards preterm delivery or increased utilization of neonatal intensive care unit admissions um, following delivery. Now that can be, what we want scientifically is to be able to say that an exposure equals an outcome. And um, and control for all of the, you know, the other sorts of things. Um, but there is a lot of kind of co-use of tobacco and mm -hmm. um, cannabis. And we know tobacco is certainly associated with low birth weight, preterm delivery, and neonatal intensive care unit admission. And there might be some contribution of cannabis on top of that. But if to contrasting it to, to tobacco, I would say that the, the, the risks of tobacco are greater than the risks of cannabis. And even the data that have these risks described, I, I would urge caution in sort of it, it, to some caution in their interpretation. And those would be like the birth outcomes. There's no evidence that cannabis causes birth defects. Again, I think it's important to have, you know, comparisons. Um, and we know, you know, among substances to which people develop addictions, alcohol can cause birth defects. And uh, tobacco, you know, has been thought of as a neuroteratogen um, by some people. So a substance that can cause birth defect-like stuff in, in, in brains um, rather than in, you know, structural facial features and stuff like that. Gotcha. Okay. You have to think about what's the appropriate comparison group for for, for in the interpretation. I will say that some of these data, um, there's stuff that, you know, what cannabis is has been changing. So the, the THC concentration of cannabis has increased, you know, significantly in the last several decades. So it's possible that the earlier studies, which were less likely to show this association with preterm, uh, with low birth weight, you know, as the concentration of THC increases, we begin to see an association that wasn't there decades ago. Gotcha. Okay. So as basically as cannabis is getting stronger, the effects of it um, and the effects of use of it during pregnancy could also change. Yeah, exactly. I'm not saying this sitting, resting upon great data, but I think co-use, um, i.e. cannabis plus tobacco um, use is decreasing. Oh, okay. 
and there's more just more just cannabis alone use. So that over time will be um, helpful to see, you know, what um, if there is an association, sort of what it is. But my sense is that effects, if found, um, will will be um, will be subtle. <laughs> yeah. And certainly not catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Now that's birth outcomes. When we think about substance exposure in utero, the, the real concern is what it means in terms of developmental outcomes. That would be, you know, through the course of childhood and um, even into early adulthood. And this is where this whole topical area of drug exposure and developmental outcome gets really kind of tricky. Of the four prospective cohorts I mentioned, these include data on, you know, up through, you know, uh, teenage and young adult life, depending on the cohort. And this is where, you know, there's overall, there, nothing, nothing jumps out um, in a uh, sort of catastrophic way at all, much less to my interpretation, like a significantly worrisome thing from these data. You know, from, from the cohort uh, of, of Canadian, these were sort of like uh, middle-class um, Canadian children who then became adults, like, you know, all of them went to high school, all of them went to college, I think, you know, everybody, there's a range of, you know, how they perform and stuff like that. But we're looking at outcomes 5, 10, 15 years down the road. And obviously, there's a lot of context and um um, you know, child rearing environments and, and things like that, that intervene between those two stuff. How do you as a doctor talk to patients then about weighing the cost benefits of it? If someone, let's say, is super sick and nothing else works and cannabis helps them keep down food and put on weight, but we don't know how it affects the baby. How do you kind of, you know, deal with this when talking to your patients or approach this topic? The issue of, you know, sort of self-medication for nausea and vomiting, which can be very, which can be severe and, and negatively impact the health of a pregnancy, that, that's a really interesting sort of topic. And, and, and there are data to show that um, cannabis can, might make nausea and vomiting pregnancy worse, as well as data that shows that people with severe nausea and vomiting um, get relief from cannabis. And it seems to be that people who are not cannabis naive, i.e. people who have used cannabis before, are more likely to benefit than people who are cannabis naive. And that tracks a little bit to like the literature that we have on nausea and vomiting due to cancer chemotherapy and use of um, cannabis as well as cannabinoids, like prescribed cannabinoids. It depends, I think, probably in what state a physician practices to answer your question. You know, I'm currently in the state of Virginia, and um, although there is there is a pathway uh, to not exactly medical cannabis, but CBD and stuff like that, uh, nausea, vomiting, and, and, and it is not an indication for that, and um, and I'm not sure it's an indication in any state actually. And pregnancy, which is I think many states sort of. Uh, an exclusion to um, cannabis recommendations. Now, at the you know doctor-patient relationship, I mean the thing that I, I mean I have had patients who smoked cannabis who were pregnant, um, who developed nausea and vomiting, who reported that it made the nausea and vomiting uh, made their symptoms better. And I tell them the same thing actually that I would tell somebody who would use cannabis during pregnancy um, without nausea and vomiting. The real main risk of um, cannabis use in pregnancy is um, if one is uh, drug tested 
um, at the time of labor and delivery and um, the urine is positive for you know, cannabinoid metabolites, that that in is many places is seen as mandatory reporting of um, drug-exposed newborn, um, which is a report that goes to child welfare agencies that might, you know, might result in a home visit, could in worst case scenario result in uh, child removal. So that is, I think, the main, that's the real big risk. You know, you brought up the drug testing, which is a big issue and the standard way for how women do get in trouble for using cannabis or other drugs during pregnancy. Can you give us a bit of an overview on um, how this works in terms of what policies are in place or do you recommend um, hospitals or providers follow in terms of who gets drug tested and when and kind of how these results should be handled when I know, um, you know, they're not always handled that way? We should take a step back and think about what is the purpose of a urine drug test at the time of labor and delivery. If the purpose is identifying a population of people who might have a a substance use disorder, i.e. an addiction to substances who would benefit from treatment, uh, which is, I think, important to identify those um, people who would benefit from um, treatment, then the urine drug test is actually a really poor test for identification of addiction. A better way to identify people who uh, either have a use disorder or might be you know, at risk of a use disorder, i.e. people who are misusing a substance, is through screening and through instruments or talking to patients. And the best way to do for this, which I call assessment, is universally. Like that every you know, pregnant woman gets asked about um, substance use and ideally early in pregnancy. And a principle that I think is key for all of this is asking um, patients permission. You know, for example, and this is what we do, we ask like, is it okay if I ask you some questions about drinking, you know, smoking and other drugs? And if she says, um, no, that's not okay, then we don't ask. And then usually we say something like, you know, we just something we ask all people is because, you know, we're concerned, you know, just to maximize your health during pregnancy and et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. So it's asking permission and respecting somebody's answer, um, because in particular, you know, people um, who use drugs are used to being um, discriminated against by healthcare providers, among other people, and um, that stigma is more pronounced um, in pregnancy for people with use disorder or even misuse. Like, there's a lot of shame and guilt about, um, you know, the inability, their inability to stop doing a behavior that they um, know to be harmful. Um, to themselves and others. So ideally, we should be integrating assessment for substance use as, you know, because that is an important domain of wellness across all, you know, medical um, domains. Mm-hmm. We want, you know, identifying somebody um, who's been in prenatal care with a substance use disorder at the time of, lab- of delivery is, you know, is, is nine months too late. Um, so I don't think that it's a good test for that, but it's oftentimes used um, at that way. It's not uncommon, I think, for um, uh, labor and deliveries or birthing hospitals to have protocols on who gets tested and who doesn't and who gets tested, you know, um, you know, people with poor like adherence to prenatal care, people who might like look or act differently. Um, it can become very selective very fast. 
And that's that's a way of really, you know, operationalizing um, prejudice and discrimination. And so if one does test, universal testing is it would be like preferred over selective testing. You know, you're speaking to us from a different state, so it'll depend on where you are. But um, I guess, would you recommend to pregnant women then to stop using cannabis if they were using it? Or what, you know, what would your advice be in terms of, you know, actual use? In my experience as a prenatal care provider, I have yet to meet a pregnant patient who was not concerned for her health and well-being, um, as well as the health and well-being of her pregnancy. Nobody wants to do something that they that that might be, you know, like harmful to themselves or to others. And most pregnant women, you know, quit or cut back using um, substances during pregnancy. And people who don't, people who continue to use, most likely have an addiction. And, you know, the salient feature of addiction being, you know, continued use despite, you know, knowledge of harms and adverse consequences. Cannabis is um, interesting. So I think it's really important when, when, you know, when I see somebody who's using cannabis is to um, actually evaluate whether or not they have an addiction to cannabis or a cannabis use disorder. Um, rates of cannabis use disorder, you know, somewhere between like five to eight percent of people who've smoked cannabis in the past year meet criteria for having a use disorder. Um, that number, that percentage is likely higher amongst pregnant people. And then people who have the condition of addiction need treatment. <laughs> so I think one thing is like, you know, making not, you know, acknowledging it, you know, figuring out is, are they, is this something they want to stop using? Can we help them stop it? Um, I think making people aware of what the, you know, professional society recommendations are, which which are abstinence. I think um, sort of shaming people um, or overstating harms and saying, like, if you keep doing this X, Y, or Z bad thing is going to happen to your, um, you know, baby-to-be, I think that that is inappropriate and oftentimes um, and unlikely to be actually scientifically grounded. And really, the core of care, like I mentioned earlier, rests upon a a respectful therapeutic alliance. And that only happens um, when, you know, we we feel comfortable in disclosing and listening um, and sharing um, between, you know, patient and provider. And so really being, you know, knowledgeable, transparent and clear that, you know, I'm you know, we support and take will take care of you. You know, like regardless of what your your ultimate decisions are around, you know, using cannabis. All right, that's it for this week's edition of Green and Gold. As always, you can find me on Twitter at epfox and Instagram at penny underscore gadget. Also, if you're feeling generous this holiday season, go on to iTunes and give us a five star rating, please, and leave your feedback, even if it's bad. We love to hear from you. Remember, Green and Gold is a Table Cakes podcast. Table Cakes Productions is a woman-owned, LA-based company. You can listen to all our other amazing podcasts at tablecakes.com. And you can support Green and Gold and the rest of the company by going to patreon.com backslash tablecakes. Until next time, buds.